Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer on episode 119 of the Speaking Club podcast. Here's something that I read, loved and inspires me from the American comedian, actor and TV presenter Jonathan Winters. So I wanted to share it with you. I couldn't wait for success, so I went ahead without it. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hello! Wasn't that a great quote? It reminds me that we're the creators of our own story and we just need to believe in ourselves and make it happen. Well, I hope you're well and thanks again for joining me on The Speaking Club. I feel things are looking a bit brighter. We've been allowed outside more and I've been loving that. I've been enjoying my birthday present, something I feel every 49-year-old woman should get, a longboard skateboard. (laughs) For many years, I am a bit of a child. For many years, I've wanted one, and I wanted, I wanted to go to one of those skate parks. I always sort of imagined myself doing those bowls and things. And do you know what? I found one near where I live, and I went there. I thought, sod it. Why shouldn't I? So I went, and do you know what? I wasn't the only middle-aged person there. So I am eyeing up. I didn't get on the bowl, but I'm eyeing it up. So watch out for an Instagram story on that soon. What have you been up to? Have you been doing anything new and exciting? sort of picked up a new hobby or something during lockdown? If you have, pop me a DM on Instagram, at saraharcher15, and let me know. I'd love to hear what it is. Anyway, let's talk about today's interview. I'm thrilled to be talking to Monda Ram OBE. It's a cool name, isn't it? Now, Monda is the Professor of Small Business and Director of Centre for Research in Ethnic Minority Entrepreneurship at Aston Business School and one of my story-led speaking programme students. And Monda's known as an authority on small business, and he speaks all over the world on the subject to academics, businesses, and policymakers. He's a government advisor too. And on this show, we get into the challenges that small business owners and entrepreneurs face, as well as the big opportunities for talent acquisitions that larger employers are missing. Then we go into depth on speaking and there are some fabulous insights about how Monda tailors his talk for different audiences and great tips for making your talk more engaging, particularly if you're an academic or an expert or author or have some topic that you need to share that's complex. But before I move over to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that the story-led speaking program that Monda's a student of will be launching again in July. And if you're an online entrepreneur, author, expert or coach, and you want to work with me to learn how to engage, inspire and sell when you speak, then head over to storyledspeaking.com. You'll be able to join the waiting list and then you'll be the first to know about any pre-launch workshops I'm doing and when the doors to the program will be open. I'll pop the link in the show notes so you can click that and have a look. Cool. Let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast, Monda Ram. I'm delighted to be here, Sarah. Thanks very much for asking me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. Tell me what your title is and then what you do today and what that entails. 
Sure. Well, my official title is um, Professor of Small Business, and I'm the director of the Centre for Research in Ethnic Minority Entrepreneurship, which is a specialist research centre that focuses on diversity and small businesses. And we're located at Aston Business School, Aston University. Cool. That's rather grand, Professor of Small Businesses. How did you get into that? Most of my life has been spent in and around small business. Um, It all stems from my parents. My parents uh, made the classic immigrant journey. So my father came over in the 50s as a penniless uh, migrant from uh, India. He worked for most of his early life in, in foundries and factories until he decided to break out, start a small business, which, which was grocery at the time, providing goods and services to, to the migrants uh, in the area. And that was reasonably successful. And I remember growing up serving in the shop. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was my uh, much of my early childhood serving in that shop. And then he developed an interest in starting a clothing business with a partner, and that took off. And most of my family, my brothers and sisters, now work in the clothing sector in one way or another. And so did I. I mean, I went into education. I did my degree. I did a, a management course with the express intention of going back into the business. But um, I got so taken by the educational pathway that I thought, I really find this interesting. And so I thought, well, let's see if I can make a crack at this particular career. And I did. But the odd thing was I spent most of my life when I was in the family business trying to get out of it. Once I was in the <laughs> academic, or, 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 as many do actually, as, as, and when I actually entered the academic arena in the late 1980s, um, early 90s, I spent most of my life, and I have actually writing about that experience. Um, and I, I know in your work, Sarah, you talk very much about stories and drawing on your own resources to develop an authentic story. And much of my academic career has been about I suppose articulating the lived experience of people like my dad people like my mother um, and how they make their way in a a very uncertain world so I started in the academic um, arena in 1989 did my PhD and then started writing almost continuously since then but ever since that point it's it's always been important to me Yes, that we do the academic research and we have to make sure that we do it at a reasonable level, but that's necessary. It's not sufficient. We've got to make something of it. And I think that's what we've, my colleagues and I have tried to do almost from the get-go. Yes, we've understood the nature of working small businesses, some of their challenges, um, some of the opportunities, why they're different. But what do we do with that knowledge? How do we share that knowledge? And I think that sort of commitment and actually some of the work that you do, Sarah, so well is about telling that story it is really very, very important. I think it's massively important, full stop. I think in the academic arena, um, our conventional ways of telling stories is to write academic papers that no one reads. Um, what we need to do is to think through other ways of communicating with the kind of people we want to influence. Cool. And so does that fall, in terms of the area, is it fall into social science, what you do? Yeah, I, I, I would describe myself as a social scientist, but 
I would say that all science is social science, all even the hardest natural sciences, chemistry, biology, physics, have a social element to them. When you're a scientist, you implement your findings in a context, often with people. And if you do that, you're immediately interested in how that context affects you. Um, and, you know, you've talked in your previous work about mindsets, etc. They can have a massive bearing on the success or otherwise mm. of an initiative. And the same applies to the sciences. Well, the context in which scientific interventions are introduced are really, really important. So I think everyone... Every, even scientists or social scientists, it's just it's a matter of degree rather than kind. Yeah, and I, I would imagine exactly the, your your background and the whole nature of what you talk about must have such a rich vein of stories. You know that whole you know, rags to those story archetypes of rags to riches and you know overcoming monsters and I mean, it's just like there's loads of it there. I would imagine. Well, I think there's a, there's a huge amount. When I first started writing in this uh, areas, uh, Sarah, my first book, my, based on my PhD, was about what what's it like working in very small firms, and um, the firms I looked at were run and owned by people I knew. So the the method that we used to look at it was ethnography, which is basically a fly on the wall documentary, but yes. done in an academic context. So I used to go out and spend days with um, clothing manufacturers. So when they go on deliveries, and I was there as a social scientist, I would sit in the car and just chat, a bit like what we're doing now. But that provided a fascinating insight into how these businesses actually worked. You know, at the time, the academics were saying these businesses um, are just one big happy family on the one hand. On the other hand, they were saying, or they're hugely exploitative. Well, you know, you run your business, Sarah. I've worked in a family business. They can be everything. It's, it's the human condition. You know, in everything about the human condition is played yeah. out in the family business. So there's a massive highs and lows. It is exploitative, but it's massively rewarding as well. And it's all that turmoil and uh, confusion and joy and exhilaration. And I thought, well, that's what I experienced when I was growing up, that's what I'm seeing on a daily basis in these firms as a social scientist. What gets reported in the press about Asian businesses, uh, because I looked at Asian businesses at the time, and in academic journals, was completely different. And um, so what I was really interested in was actually utilising that knowledge gained by looking very, uh, I suppose, rigorously at the experiences of people who were working in small firms to tell a different kind of story to academics, but more importantly to policymakers and uh, business support intermediaries as well. Because uh, as you know, Sarah, now enterprise is a massive imperative. In order to do that, we need the right policies. Well, if the policies are based on a really underdeveloped or inaccurate understanding of how these businesses actually work, they're going to fail. And that's why a lot of policy interventions actually fail. They're not grounded in the worldview of owners and the people who work in these businesses. So much of my work, my early work, in fact, up until today, it's it's still the case. We want to tell the stories, the lived experience, communicate the lived experience of people who actually work in these businesses, their challenges, their opportunities, and how we can best support them. And what are some of the issues that you've come across that migrant entrepreneurs face? 
I think there are there are many, but when we use the term migrant entrepreneurs, uh, we, we need to understand that there are very different kinds of migrant entrepreneurs. There are some fabulously wealthy, successful, incredibly well-connected migrant entrepreneurs, uh, and there are many examples of that. Our shop, many of our sort of high street stores, etc., are run by fabulous migrant entrepreneurs. Their challenges. I mean, they could teach us a thing or two about running successful businesses. So we've got to understand there are very different kinds of migrant entrepreneurs. But I suppose the ones that we have, many people think of when you use the term migrant entrepreneurs with people who arrive first generation, often don't know who to turn to in terms of advice and support. They frequently start businesses in hugely competitive sectors, which don't have promising prospects, for example, in the retail and the catering sector, and they probably don't have the kind, uh, right kind of experience or resources to draw upon them. So traditionally, the problems or challenges have been threefold. One is access to finance, getting the right financial um, support. The second is access to markets. Often, as I said, they start businesses in markets which sectors are you know, overpopulated. Mm. And it's very difficult to progress in those sectors. And there's also um, access to management, have, having the right skill set to make it as an entrepreneur. So the, those are the three M's, access to markets, uh, management and money that are really important in trying to understand some of the initial challenges. And, and we've seen that with the different waves of migration. When I first started researching this issue, we, when we talked about migrant entrepreneurs, we were talking about Asians, African-Caribbeans, Chinese, and those are some of the challenges that they faced. If we if we use if we look now we're talking about a whole range of diverse communities Somalis Iraqis Eastern Europeans uh, Iranians etc and you know in Birmingham some academics have coined this a super diverse city because of the the number of different groups that are now in the city and it's very difficult to make generalizations but if we were to identify a list of common challenges it would broadly fall in those categories markets, money and management. Do you think that they are specific to migrant entrepreneurs? Because I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, wherever, whatever background they have, have similar challenges. Um, or do you think that they're just more amplified for people who are moving to a new country? That's a really uh, important question. And I think I like your last word, amplified, because I think the challenges that they face are pretty generic. You know, you ask any small business owner, they'll talk about the challenges of getting the right finance. They'll talk about challenges about getting the right staff. And they'll say how tough it is in terms of uh, being in a particular sector or market. Those are generic challenges. And so I think, but with migrant and ethnic minority entrepreneurs, I think they are accentuated for various reasons. One of the reasons that they are accentuated is if you look at the profile of migrant and ethnic minority entrepreneurs, they tend to be heavily skewed. So a disproportionate minority of migrant entrepreneurs will be in what we call low-value-added sectors. They'll be in catering. Mm. Um, they'll be in transport, i.e. Uh, taxi driving. They'll be in retailing. Yes, that many have broken out, but if you look at the profile, They'll be in those sectors. Yeah. Now, now it's tough for anyone in those sectors, but it's particularly tough for minority entrepreneurs because they are disproportionately in those sectors. Right. So, so they are amplified. 
But then there's also the issue that is probably particularly particularly faces minority entrepreneurs entrepreneurs, and that's discrimination of one kind or another. Mm. And often minorities start businesses because they can't they either they can't get a job in the mainstream labor market or because their qualifications aren't recognized. So often they start businesses because of a, a lack of opportunity rather than I've got this great desire to be, become an entrepreneur. So I suppose in summary, many of the challenges are similar, but they are sharper and apply with particular force with many migrant entrepreneurs because of the sector sectors that they're in. But also in some cases because of the wider context of inequality that we uh, that unfortunately is still with us. That's interesting, isn't it? So, so what you're saying is, you know, whereas I might have chosen to come out of corporate life and start my own business and it's a matter of, you know, choice and passion, often it's a matter of survival and, and having no other option. And that, that starting point is very different, isn't it? It is, it is very different. When we first started researching um, this topic in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, there were, we would do surveys of uh, different minority businesses, Asian businesses, and we had we faced this. We found that there were some incredibly well qualified uh, Asians running corner shops. So we had chemists, engineers, electricians running uh, food shops, and you, you asked the basic question, "Why?" And they said, "Well, we just can't get a job." Fast forward to a very recent study we did in the uh, East Midlands and a similar study in the West Midlands. And we were asking um, Iraqis with PhDs, why are you running a corner shop? Um, and it was the same reason. So it, it comes in waves. And, and this is an issue. I do a, a lot of work in Europe. This sort of being shut out of prestigious career paths because their experience and qualifications aren't recognized. That's a fairly well-reported and common issue. On a recent project we were doing, uh, we hired a researcher to do some interviews for us. Uh, in a, in the new African communities, and we hired uh, this Ethiopian chap. And when I got to know him, he was a judge in Ethiopia. And oh. and, and I was thinking, this is absolutely, there's something really bizarre about this and really depressing. You know, we've got huge amount of talent in our communities, which goes unrecognized. And some of our systems actually work against the recognition of that talent rather than the realization of it. And it's interesting, isn't it? So employers are, are struggling to find talent. There's untapped talent out there, but for whatever reason, it's that they're not being given those opportunities. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, and, and I think that's a, a massively important shock. I mean, in, in your podcast and others, when we all talk about how the world of work is changing dramatically, a lot of the skills that are going to be needed or are needed now aren't necessarily the formal. <laughs> Um, academic qualifications of yesteryear, you know, and many of these migrant communities, if you think about it, if you're a refugee or a migrant, you have to be massively resourceful, um, adventurous, creative, and I suppose entrepreneurial to flee a situation of poverty or terror, negotiate your access, come to a new land and make it. In another context, those would always be seen as entrepreneurial qualities. Yeah. Um, you know, so the act of immigration is probably the act of the most entrepreneurial act you can conceive of. And yet, you know, these talents, these qualities 
which on one level we all applaud, aren't being recognized in these newer communities. And so, and that's a challenge, and it's a challenge for uh, for us all, but it's particularly a challenge for, I suppose, educators, policymakers, practitioners um, who want to promote integration, promote business, that really we have uh, lots of assets in our communities and they could be used to, I suppose, develop a UK PLC if we had the imagination and creativity to utilise them. And it's interesting. So I wanted to ask whether you thought that these sorts of issues are universal or whether they differ country by country. So, you know, is it the same in the US, in Europe, in where, you know, wherever they're facing the same sorts of challenges? I think they're the same to the extent that most European countries and indeed American countries face, face the challenge slash opportunity of migration. That's a, a worldwide phenomenon and it's intensified given developments all over the globe. You know. um, but the way it's handled is often very different and uh, from context to context. So I do a fair amount of work in Scandinavia. In Scandinavia and in Germany, there's uh, a big policy emphasis on integration. So when a migrant gets there, there's a, there are packages of support to facilitate integration, um, language support, uh, business advice, labor market guidance, etc. Um, and that is really useful and helpful. Unfortunately, in the UK, we don't have that degree of support. And often uh, migrants are left to fend for themselves or rely on their own sort of communities. Um, but on the other hand, if a, a migrant wanted to start a business in, let's say, a part of Scandinavia or Holland or Germany, they have to go and negotiate quite a few regulatory hurdles. You know, do you need, we need this accreditation, that accreditation before you can start a business. Uh, but in the UK, it's relatively easy to start a business. We've, uh, we've done research uh, uh, with the Somali community who are dispersed across uh, Europe. And many migrate, many, for example, migrate from Holland to the Netherlands to the UK because they want, because it's easier to start the business. And they do this trade-off that welfare benefits are greater, but if they want to be entrepreneurial, um, it's easier to start a business in uh, the UK. So in terms of differences, there are differences, and those differences are largely dependent upon the regulatory traditions in those countries, the pol public policy traditions, and what their take is, what their strategy is towards integration. Cool. And what are some of your big successes? Two or three things. One, I suppose, in terms of, of, of a body of work, the fact that we've been able to show that the experiences of different uh, communities, and indeed uh, small business owners, you know, when I started, uh, research in this area there weren't many or indeed any um, professors of enterprise or small business there were very few it wasn't a particularly attractive or sexy topic but now it is I, I like to think I've played my role in making it a much more mainstream topic but particularly in my field in my field the only people writing about the entrepreneurial experience of migrants were anthropologists or geographers they weren't business people or business scholars and, and we've always made the point that, you know, if, if you're interested in business, you, you need to be interested in diversity. Make, standing out is one of the key uh, assets that an entrepreneur has. But I think one of the big successes is to, show, is to demonstrate the contribution of communities to UK PLC, to business, to make mainstream 
what at that time was very much a minority perceived. So when we publish, when we talk, when we address audiences, it's not simply to people who specialize in ethnic businesses. And the center that I run, our mission is to make diversity in enterprise every, everyone's business. What that essentially means is that we need to engage with a variety of different communities, business people, community groups, academic students, entrepreneurs, and tell them our story in a relatable way if we're going to make our case and if we're going to demonstrate the importance of our issue. I suppose we've done more than most to relate to different audiences and to work hand in glove with business owners. We work very closely with business owners and community groups and policymakers, and not many academic centres do or do to this degree. So I think telling our story to a range of different communities uh, has been uh, I would consider a success. And also, I've been doing this for over 30 years. I was the first person in my family to go to university. My, my dad was, became incredibly successful as a business owner. And towards the end of his days, he still couldn't read or write other than his name in, in terms of English. And he was just through sheer, it was through just sheer, sheer hard work. And now I'm blessed or fortunate enough to, to work with the best in the world in my area in, in a field that is all about communication. So I think you know, that privilege of being able to tell his story, my family's story, through the medium of uh, writing, talking, talking to you now, to different audiences, it's a massive privilege. And I think that's, I consider that a success. Brilliant. Now, I mean, you've covered what I was going to ask a little bit, which is obviously a massive part of your job or your your career is speaking and you're speaking to a wide range of audiences. Do you consciously change the content and presentation style for those different types of audiences? Because I'd imagine talking to an academic audience would be very different to talking to a group of small business owners. I do. I do. Um, but I have to, I think I mentioned this to you before, Sarah, but there was a, a sort of epiphany that happened in 2004. Before 2004, I, I did what academics always do when they've been asked to talk, which, to, which, which is to hurriedly produce a set of slides or PowerPoint, do a mini version of the academic paper they wrote, and just throw that up on the screen. And that's what most, most academics still do. And I did that for a good 10 to 15 years. And um, the, the feedback I used to get, or used to, the best kind of feedback I would get is, that's interesting. And, then, <laughs> I, 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 and in 2004, I was invited to do a big keynote address um, in uh, Australia, and it was a national Australia, New Zealand Australia small business conference. And I thought, well, you know, this is the biggest thing I've done. Maybe I should um, ask someone to, to help me on, on, on speaking because I'd, I'd put the slides up and I'd got 20 slides and I thought I was losing the will to live reading them. Um, and so I got some support and this, I, I said, I forgot her name, but the, a consultant spent a day with me. And for most of the day, she was asking, what's your passion? What's your passion? What's your story? And, um, and then she left. And then when she left, I thought, well, I'm not going to be using slides. And then I thought I would experiment. I'd use notes and speak at a lectern. And, and that's why I thought I was going to do so. But when it came to the time that I was asked to present and give my talk in front of what, two, three hundred people, 
I just left the notes um, on my chair and just spoke in the middle of the room, not behind the lectern. And, um, and I don't know what made me do that, but afterwards the feedback was something I'd never received before. That, that was inspirational. That, that's a natural. You must have been doing this for years. And it was the first time I, I've ever done it. And that was in 2004. And since then, that's what I do. You know, I, 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 very, I don't think I've used PowerPoint maybe once or twice if someone's insisted. But I, I, now I communicate without notes. And that has forced me to change the way that I present. So you asked uh, the question, Sarah, was do you present in different ways with audiences? I do. And I think if you're not relying on often the crutch of PowerPoint, you can't tell a story, you can't communicate in the same way. So it almost forces you to think again about uh, the kind of message you're going to convey because you can't turn your back on the audience and you can't point to a set of slides. So you're almost forced to think a diff that I have to tell my story in a different way. And everyone's eyes are going to be on you, not an, uh, a wall or a, a whiteboard. So that's the starting point. So if it's an academic audience, the way I present is going to be unusual, uh, unusual because academics normally do use PowerPoint. So if it's an academic audience, then I know that they're going to be interested in um, you know, why, what, why is this new? Why yeah. should I be interested in this topic? Um, why is this new? How does this differ from the many other scholars, academics who have written on this before? So that's always in the back of your mind. How do you convey the novelty? What, they always, that, what they're also going to be interested in is, can you support your claim? Can you substantiate what you're going to say? So, and this is a difference between, uh, so I suppose, a practitioner audience uh, and an academic audience. So, um, academic audiences will often leap on you if you know you make a claim without backing you up. So they'll want to know. Okay, you're saying that, um, let's say, migrant entrepreneurs are, are discriminated against. Uh, how do you know? Uh, and then, so to preempt that, you'll you know you'll have to know what the existing research says or what your research says. And if you're making a new claim, you have to tell them about your methods. How have you arrived at that particular claim? So that's uh, different. And I think then you have to say, okay, this is how what I'm saying contributes to the wider discussions, wider literature on the whatever area. So with an academic audience, those are the things that you have to be um, very careful of. And I think, again, with an academic audience, it's important not to overclaim. You know, you, it, I, I, watch, I watch speakers and I um, do a bit of research and you see, you see these gee whiz motivational, inspirational uh, speakers. And I think if they were in front of an academic audience, um, they wouldn't have um, the audience whooping with delight by saying how great they are. You know, so actually being mo modest or sort of measured is seen as an asset. Now, I, I think that's what uh, I would bear in mind with an academic audience. But still within those confines, you can make it interesting, you can make it entertaining, you can make it funny, and you can be relatable. Um, I, I think academics don't do that enough. Yeah. Because, and I, and I, we can maybe talk about this later. So that's an academic audience. But, but with policymakers and practitioners, um, you can be 
a bit more flexible. Um, and I've listened to some of your, uh, your your great podcast. And, you know, knowing your audience is critical, but it is really, really, with policymakers, they'll have an issue. They'll have a problem that they want would want solving. Okay, um, so, so with, let's say, uh, business, a business support provider or a business support policymaker, okay, they'll be thinking, I understand minority business is important, but what do I need to do to how do I need to change in order to be responsive? What does it mean for me? And um, then what I try and do is frame my talk around that challenge. So let's say if I'm trying to persuade, let's say, a policymaker that the existing policy offer for small businesses is inadequate for minority businesses, I would I would think, well, okay, I'm not going to, uh, harass them and uh, I suppose take them to task um, because that's not going to get the response I want. But neither am I going to say, well, you know, it's really difficult to understand, understand why you're not responding because that's not going to initiate change. What I would do is say, look, you know, we have a mutual interest there and that is to encourage enterprise from all communities. We're all bought into that. The existing offer that we have isn't quite doing that. So if we're going to be as good as we can be, how do we affect change in that area? And here are a few ideas. So I think it's actually, when you're trying to initiate change in that context, it's putting yourself alongside your audience and almost mentally rehearsing, you know, how would you take them from the position they are to the position you want them to be? Yeah, I think that it's really interesting the way that you've framed all of that. So it's, you know, that's something I've talked about before and is around, you know, everything starts with the audience and you you are preempting their objections and the academic objections are, are probably, like you say, very different yeah. from the practitioner's objections. But the way that you're thinking through that in advance, rather than just putting a PowerPoint slide up and reading your work, is yeah. you know is is probably putting you, from what I understand, you know, from talking to you and other people, streets ahead of of other academics who haven't quite grasped that they need to adapt their message and 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 also to focus on engaging an audience and and different audiences. That's that's great. So. How, typically, how do you prepare for a talk? Um, that's a, that's a, a, a really interesting question. And um, even though I've been doing this for a while, some, someone sends you uh, an invitation and um, immediately you feel really uh, sort of pleased that you've got an invitation, but you feel a bit of panic. Oh, I haven't done that before. I haven't done that before. And then you calm down. And what I often find myself... Well, doing is mentally preparing as much as I do uh, research. So obviously, let's take for, take this read. We all need to do our research. We need to um, understand what we're talking about. Or we need to be up to speed with the issues, the literature, etc. Um, and I think as a sort of traditional way, a traditional academic would use that and then generate slides and then not think about the presentation. Um, but because I don't tend to use PowerPoint. I, I, I can't do that. So uh, what, I, what I often do, and this is 
um, not a deliberate process, and that's why I'm really interested in, in your your courses, which set these pro, uh, make it a very systematic process. Why? What, uh, what I find myself is mentally thinking um, about the presentation and the situation and the audience. So I think the audience is really critical. So I will think, well, who's in the audience? What are their challenges? What are they going to be concerned about? And so I've just received an invitation to speak in Stockholm um, in a month or so. And it's from uh, policymakers and practitioners who are working with this. So I will know from that that, you know, they will know that integration is a challenge. They will know the relevant facts or figures. What they're interested in is in solutions, novel ways of looking at that. So that's what I think is going to be their, uh, I suppose, sweet spot. We have to address that particular issue. So I think getting to an understanding of the audience, who's in the audience, what their challenges are, and also the time, timing is really important as well. Um, so when I was doing talks uh, over the last year, Brexit was always on the horizon, and you know that needs to be incorporated. So being so understanding the context is really important. And then what I tend to do is think, well, if I'm going to give this talk, what are the two or three key things that I want to say or they need to know? And that gives me my spine. So all the talks I do have a structure, have a spine. Um, and I know I have to address these uh, two or three points. And that, for me, allays my anxiety um, because I think the, I know now these are the three core points. Then I think there's the more fluid and creative and sometimes more challenging stuff. Okay, you, they need to know these three points, but then how do I convey that in a reasonably interesting, accessible way? And that's the challenge. That can be, I mean, I, I, I'm a social scientist. I'm, I don't consider myself, although I do professional speaking, that's not my number one job. So actually, I find that a real liberation um, because I think I don't have to, and I know you do stand-up comedy, and I, I think that must be a, a huge respect. I mean, I think it must be really challenging. You've got to make this audience laugh. But I think, I, try, I do try and make my audience laugh, but the, the, the fact that is, you know, Academics are expected to be really boring and tedious, so <laughs> they have very they have a very low expectation. So um, uh, the audience will. So I will have that spine in my head. I will I will know that I'll need to cover this area, and then I relax a bit. And then when I relax, I think, well, how can I make this really? Uh, how do I get into this topic? Because the way you get into the topic will really be important in how. It, the three the, the the core argument is received and i think that's the challenge and that can be really anxiety inducing but i i find the process of just having a spine uh, allays some of that anxiety and then what i've generally developed is okay in terms of the framing which i know uh, you really emphasize um, in your works uh, sarah in terms of framing i think that's absolutely critical and then that that the way into a talk is, is vital, and I have sort of two or three um, strategies, uh, and those are to ask a question, because I think it's, it immediately gets the audience thinking, or I relay a fact, a reasonably interesting uh, fact or a surprising fact. Again, it induces 
a curiosity in the audience, or I start with a with a story, with an anecdote. It'll be a, a, a true one that relates to my my own view. That provides that often provides my way into the topic. I think that's really important. I do try and be conversational and natural and uh, humorous if I can. I never I, I never tell jokes uh, because I think you have to be authentic, and I'm not a natural joke teller. But I fairly I do get good feedback saying that was really interesting, really witty, really funny. But I think that works for me because it derives from the material and who I am. And I think being an academic, I think is enormously freeing as well, because uh, the the, the expectation isn't that you're going to be irreverent. And I am so uh, irreverent when I I talk. And there was something really important um, that I I I know for myself, but that you reinforced in one of your podcasts that what 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 you want at the end of a talk is someone who can relate to you. You've related to them. You've provided some insight, a chink of light, or a moment of relief for, for an audience. The, the the last thing you want to do is oh, here's this chap on a pedestal, or or is this woman who's unapproachable? And I think that's really important. And when you said in one of your podcasts that it's not about eliminating the ums and the ahs. It's about actually being a bigger version of yourself, really conveying who you are. I think that's really important and massively liberating as well because I think often, um, and I, I used to experience, I still experience this, but I used to experience this a lot more earlier on. You know, what can I possibly say that's interesting to that audience? You know, and, and the answer is there is no one who sees the world like you. Um, and there is no one that has your insight on a particular topic. You are the expert in being yourself. And so if you're interested in conveying something novel, it's you that's novel. It's not the yes. topic. It's you. It's what you bring to that topic that's novel. It's nothing else. And, and, and I found that, again, that insight massively um, empowering because I think, no, this is who I am. You know, they've asked me to talk not because I'm A and other. They've asked me to talk because this is who I am. You've come here to listen to me because this is who I am. I'm not going to mimic someone else. I'm going to be myself, but only more so. And I think that only more so is really, really important. And that's why I think the work that you do is really, really important, Sarah, because I think it's about you know being comfortable yourself, being really present uh, with an audience. Uh, because when you're present, that's when you know you're connecting. Absolutely. I think I, I wouldn't, I love everything you just said there. That's, you know, it, it does take the pressure off because A, you're not pretending to be someone else. Because I always find, especially when I'm working with clients, when you mention when it's a presentation, suddenly their whole personality changes. They, they leave their, themselves, at, you know, off stage and, and some stranger walks on and then that messes them up, to be honest. But I think the other important point that you're making here is certainly I think when, you know, this would be my experience, I think, and I don't know if, if this is right, but I've worked in, in science organisations before. And I think what is interesting to a lay audience, and I don't know, it may even be interesting to an academic audience, is why you are interested in that thing or solving that problem as a scientist yeah, and yeah. the struggles that you've had 
in finding the answer more so than the, the data and the statistics you know why is it important to you that you've dedicated your life to it how how does that then apply to wider society and impact on people's lives so it's making it relatable and relevant and i i don't even know if that might be true for an academic audience as well um but yeah i think you're absolutely right it's about bringing your take on it your insight your personality to bring this stuff alive for people absolutely right brilliant no i i i think that that is the essence and i think that's why i think this whole process of being able to communicate yourself as opposed to some polished version of yourself is really really important you know we've got um it's really important now that people's voices are heard it's a very uncertain world you know and some people's voices get heard more than others why is that you know we need to understand that we need to provide spaces for people to uh, be themselves and i think academics have a, a particularly important role to play uh, yesterday i discovered that academics or uh, professors are only second to doctors in being the most trusted profession i think with academics it's 86 and doctors it's around 90 think about that for a moment that immediately puts you in an advantageous position and i think as a community we don't uh, take advantage of that and taking advantage of that i don't mean an exploitative way by by saying you know okay i'm saying this i'm great etc no it's thinking well look if let's if an academic stood up and said look here's this topic it's really difficult um to know what is the truth in this context but here are certain principles that i think can help and let's try and understand those principles i think that can be massively liberating rather than sort of putting uh, putting themselves on a pedestal and saying it's this it's that providing answers i think actually in your words unpacking the process unpacking why an issue is important uh, can actually be in, in incredibly empowering for an audience that mm. saying here's this individual with knowledge saying you know it's difficult to come up with a right and wrong answer even after years of learning but we can to work work our way through the world in a more adequate way i think that can be massively important massively important i mean in politicians some politicians now are talking about citizens assemblies as a way of tackling uh, complex problems which is getting diverse groups of people together to unpack their knowledge and pack their stories as it were and i i think it's massively important um so i think the whole from an academic perspective that we are in a really good position to communicate that often we don't do that because we we hide behind our academic uh, shield or armor but we need to step outside a lot more often than we do yeah absolutely and uh well thank you so much for sharing all of that stuff i mean it's really you know the whole area of work that you do and 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 what you said there i i actually love working with academics with uh any sort of people that are used to following process because like you said I have a systematic approach to it and I I actually believe that creativity is born out of systems if there's a system that helps you to un- to release that stuff and find those stories and and get your message across better I think it's much easier for people to to do that because there's often this oh you have to be creative or you know mm. is some magic and it's it's not part of it is doing the work which you do and then you know and then just still exploring your life and you know I loved what you said about lived 
lived experience. And I think as speakers, we need to just take our lived experience and share it with audiences to in a way that makes it relatable to their problems and pain. And yeah, that's brilliant stuff. Thank you for sharing all that. No, my, my pleasure. And I, I would emphasize the point you've just made about what, why your work is so helpful, because you realize that's the task. And sometimes the daunting thing is, well, how do I make it happen? Mm. And actually having a framework, I know you have your framework, and that's, that's incredibly useful because that is a, a really helpful way of thinking through the kind of message you want to convey, but without losing your authenticity, authenticity because mm. I think it enhances it rather than taking it away. Smashing. Well, I've got some standard questions. You're not going to get away without me asking them. So no. what's, the, what's the best thing that speaking's done for you? The best thing? I think it makes me happy. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it makes me happy when you when you've actually conveyed your message, and people are smiling and interesting, um, and moved. You know, and and I, and I think that is genuinely, yeah, it's, 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 it brings joy at that moment. That's the best answer I think I've ever ever had. Um, and is there a ba- is there a worst gig that you've had that you can remember? <sighs> yeah, yeah. It was my. It was my. I run an annual conference. It was my own conference, and I just got going. Um, and because the other speakers had overrun, um, this particularly zealous chair said, "Well, you've got two minutes left." When I thought I had fifteen minutes left, um, <laughs> uh, and I just said, "Well, it's my conference, mate." You know, uh, but I still didn't get away with it. But I think that was pretty bad. Um, and actually, uh, and a totally inappropriate. Uh, opening comment at a, an event which um, <laughs> I thought funny but the audience didn't oh no okay and what's the one book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why that's um well that's uh I'll tell you a, a, a very recent one which is the it's called The Examined Life by Stefan Gross and um, which is serialized by Radio 4 it's by a psychotherapist um, who was just in a very matter-of-fact way talking about his interactions with his clients. Some chapters were two pages, some were three pages, some were 15, and he was just evoking. And he was just, and these were ordinary people, but what he did in a very skillful way, in a very accessible way, was peel away the layers of these individuals to, re- to actually reveal who they were and some of their challenges and they would go right to childhood, but we're talk, We're not talking. His everyone he spoke about was hugely, often successful, often very functioning, well-adjusted human beings. But it, uh, but they all had their own stories, challenges, issues, and what he did with immense skill was peel away the layers. And I think he he told a story, you know, yeah. and what and I think that what that psychotherapist was. What the author was doing is very similar to what we're doing, which is, you know, providing the tools to allow someone to tell their story. And that's what he was doing in a very skillful way. And I think, you know, how I've studied difference, diversity, etc. But in this really mixed up world, sometimes there's so much that we have in common. The human condition has, is very simple as well. We are underneath it all. We all 
have universal challenges and, and it's all the same brilliant well i'll make it i'll make sure i put a link to that in the show notes what's the best piece of business advice you've ever had and why i think the best piece you, you can be very you know show business go for your dreams etc cetera, etc cetera. but i heard this in a radio show done by a comic and and they were saying how do i become funny and they say and i think this is a a thing that is transferable across context be yourself but only more so and for what that means is accentuate what's really good about yourself what you think is really powerful and who you are and that will amplify and make you glow and make you stand out i love that that's really cool because because in a comic in a comedy context uh, that would be looking at those things almost like uh, creating a caricature of yourself on stage. So amplifying almost the, the bits that will make people laugh. But in a business context, it's about amplifying your superpowers and your, your zone of genius. I, I think that's really cool. That's, that's great. Excellent. Um, right. Last one. If you could have one mentor, they could be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? I could have one mentor. Oh, that's a that's a that's a, a, a difficult one. Um, oh, that's that's a re, that's a, a, a really challenging. I've got a great mentor at the moment, but he doesn't recognise it. He's my old supervisor, uh, my PhD, a gentleman scholar who's just interested in the topic, the people, and no completely and complete absence of self gain totally interested immersed in the subject so i think i'm, I'm pretty fortunate i've got one paul uh, what's edwards his name well, professor paul edwards there you go we'll give him a shout out that's brilliant <laughs> good Wanda. well thank you so much for sharing everything today is there anything else that you would like to say to call this all complete before i go on to where people can find out more about you um i found i find this really important and i think the work that you do and that others do in encouraging working with others to, to tell their stories, as we've said, to be their best felt selves is really important. And it's a, a massive resource that we could all uh, do well to make more of. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And where can people find out more about you or if they want to connect with you to, you know, maybe they want to get in touch about some of the stuff that we talked about, yes. about migrant business and so on. Well, I'm on Twitter at Mondoram. Um, or lowercase M O N D E R R A M. I work at Aston University. M dot Ram one at as at Aston dot AC dot UK. Brilliant. Find me at those places. And you're on LinkedIn as well, I think. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'll put links in the show notes to all of that. Well, that's it. Thank you so much again for sharing all of that and coming on the show. My pleasure, Sarah. Thank you very much. We certainly covered a lot of ground in that interview, and I hope it's given you some food for thought in terms of the contribution that migrant entrepreneurs make to our community, the challenges that immigrants face and how they could be a source of untapped talent for your organisation, maybe. And I also hope that you've had a lot of aha moments about your speaking from our conversation. Monda has certainly embraced storytelling and trusting his authentic voice and it's worked. It's increased the impact of his message and requests for him to share it. Make sure you go and say hi to Monda on Twitter or LinkedIn. And if you have any specific questions about his work, then drop him an email. I'll put the link in the show notes for that too. 
So thank you again for joining me. Please uh, do me a solid, as they say on the streets, and uh, leave me a review if you enjoyed the show. And uh, wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts or another podcasting app or Spotify, that'd be brilliant. And don't forget to put yourself on the waiting list for the Story-Led Speaking Programme if you want to work with me uh, to make yourself a speaker that engages, inspires and sells and that you can do at storyledspeaking.com. Cool. All that's left for me to say is keep safe. And remember, don't wait for success. Go out and grab it by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. You don't need to waste more time searching for an answer. When the most powerful tools to becoming a great speaker and growing your business are already in your possession. Your stories. The trouble is that many people believe that either they haven't got a story to tell or that you need to be a natural-born storyteller to use them successfully. But neither of these things are true. Everyone has stories and I want to help you discover yours and share them more powerfully with my new freebie, My Story Wizard. In three steps, it's going to guide you to find your stories, power them up with humour and other tricks and share them in a way that connects with your audience and sells your thing. If that sounds good to you, then head over to mystorywizard.com and go and grab yours right now.